From the minds of two doctoral candidates, Race to Education is a podcast that explores the impact of race on education in America. As your hosts, we dive deep into the perspectives and experiences of Black and Latino communities as they navigate the intricacies of learning in the United States. This This is is Race Race to Education. Mic check, mic check. One, two, Ooh, one, two. Good. Sounds hey. good. Sounds good, Thank you, thank you. Welcome back. Hey, Maddie. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I am so excited to be back. We are in season two, episode one of Race Through Education. I know it's been a while, but we back. We have to take the cobwebs off the mic. <sighs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what? I think it's really important that we're starting in February. And why is that, Madison? Because it is Black History Month. And what is more important than talking about Black education and Black History Month? It's the root. The root. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, say the name of the episode. <laughs> I know. Black at the Root, the Foundation of Black Education in America. And we are so excited to be talking about this topic because it is something that I think a lot of people tend to miss out on when you think about Black education. You just think of it in its current iteration, right? We know that we have structural inequality. We know that we're living in a more segregated system when when it comes to our children going to school. But what happened at the beginning, right? This was chicken before the egg kind of situation, right, Maddie? I think so too. And I think we spend so much time with a deficit way of thinking about Black education. And we need to really be thinking about what's the acid-based place of of, of acid-based acid. We're not doing acid on the show. Uh, The acid-based practices of understanding Black education. Right, right. And there's so much history, so much rich history when it comes to understanding the history of Black education in this country. And what we've done with so little and how we just continue to thrive, right? So I think we need to get back to that, you know, erase that deficit thinking and that deficit speaking that you were talking about and really get back to the core of the positivity behind the Black education movement and and what our heroes and our sheroes have done to make this possible, to get to, to where we are. And you said it right about those sheroes because we totally forget about the Black women educators that paved the way in Black education. Come on now. And we hope to get to the bottom of that with our episode with Dr. Robert Robinson. Yes, we're so excited to have him. This is going to be a great episode. He's really dope and just really dives into what he calls the Black Freedom Movement as it pertains to education. So let's jump in. All right, let's do this. Robert P. Robinson is an assistant professor at the SEEK program at John Jay College and an induction mentor at Teachers College, Columbia University. Prior to higher education, He was a K-12 educator and mentor for 11 years. His broad research and teaching focuses on Black education, Black education history, history of U.S. education, curriculum studies, higher education mentorship, and the Black freedom movement. His upcoming book project is A History of the Black Panther Party's Oakland Community Schools as a site for understanding Black self-determination, the shift in mainstream curriculum and pedagogy, and the Black radical imagination in education. Welcome, Dr. Robinson. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Everyone looks so good bright and early in the morning. I'm so happy that we're all here. Um, So we're going to kind of get right into it and just 
you know, tell us more about yourself as a researcher and how do you see the relationship between your research, previous K-12 teaching, and current college pedagogy? I think as a researcher, I, I'm often tied to my early K-12 experiences. And so even though I spent the bulk of my teaching time in California, I taught in largely black and brown high schools for the majority of my career. I actually taught at my rival high school <laughs> uh, uh, because it was my old high school is being rebuilt um, while, while I started my teaching career. But I think a huge part of how CD is being connected is I, I worked at Title I schools, and I'm always thinking about the relationship between race, class, and gender, and thinking about what, what that relationship looks like in teaching. And I think that was pedagogically where I wanted to go. So I came into to grad school thinking about the students who I served thinking about the many white teachers that they had and thinking about the conversations I was having in my department spaces before then. And so I think what's happening as a researcher now is that I'm thinking with those students in mind, I literally, I think one of the two pieces I released recently is literally addressing my former students, thinking about ways that I had to combat my own notions of professionalism that were tied to mm. uh, respectability politics at the time. And so I think as a researcher, a lot of it is kind of like doing that internal excavation work uh, and thinking about what it was like for me as a black kid growing up in the quote unquote hood and what that looked like for me trying to navigate spaces of racism, of heteronormativity and homophobia and notions of class, like what, what black folks should be doing to, you know, climb their way up the ladder. <laughs> These questions about meritocracy. And, and so I think right now, I think my research is building on that same trajectory. Yeah, it's really interesting that you brought up the kind of like respectability politics and perfectionism and all of those things that kind of take up so much of blackness, takes up so, so much of our time. How do you counter all of that? I know the article that you written really talked about what does professionalism mean and what does that actually do in that particular workspace or force, college spaces, things like that? I think for me, it's still a journey I'm on. I got all these ties in my room from when I used to teach, but I mean, I also, I also like ties. So there's Part of it is like trying to, I, that sounds like a simple ass response, but part of it is kind of like interrogating things that are taken as the norm. So thinking like in that piece, I'll talk about like the ways we talk about dressing for success. And so thinking about like the, the rules that I have, I don't even have the guidelines that I have for presentations are a lot less about kind of this, the aesthetics of professionalism. I think that's one of the ways that I, I go beyond that now. I think the other thing is holding space for multiple voices in writing. So like, recognizing but the difficulty is on the other side of me there are folks who say that this is what rigorous academic writing looks like and so but being an instructor and saying here are the multiple ways that we speak and here are the ways that we bring this to our understanding of whatever the subject matter is but also making students aware of the politics of language so before it was kind of just like oh language is power and my job as your english teacher is to make sure you have access to that power via language which i think is important but I also want to I also want to leverage like the ways in which you speak and and communicate um, on a day to day basis are important. <laughs> and so I don't think I did enough of that before. So I think now I think there's there's just the way that I embrace all the ways that my students show up to the classroom, um, and the ways that I show up to the world. And so I'm doing less of trying to siphon out parts of myself and allowing all of those parts to exist, and encouraging students to do the same. Right, because we're navigating this white ivory tower space. And so it's really important for us to not only carve out space for ourselves as, as Black and Latino um, 
you know, learners and professors, but also for us a way to to really dispel this notion that we need to adhere to what have become normative ways of, of whiteness and understanding how to speak. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank Thanks. you for that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I know a big part of your research is is focused on the Black Freedom Movement. Can you help our listeners understand the Black Freedom Movement? Like, why should we care about it? Why is it relevant to today? Thank you for that. I think for me, a huge part of thinking about the Black Freedom Movement came when I was in grad school. And I was, you know, reading Education of Blacks in the South. And I was reading a lot of the works of things that were happening during the Black Freedom Movement. But I think I started to look at the long arc of Black education. And so much of the Black Freedom Movement, and I use the term Black Freedom Movement because there's the debates about whether we have the long civil rights movement or the long Black power movement. And when we say the Black Freedom Movement, it kind of does a larger picture of both of those, like as both movements happening concurrently um, and in, in, in different ways, but also at, like moving towards the same goal of Black liberation. But even the roots of that begin pre-enslavement, but the heavy roots on this continent begin during enslavement. So I think it's important for, for me to always trace back to think of how were Black folks already seeing literacy and education as an opportunity for them to combat the constraints that they existed in at that time. And I think what we see in the Black freedom movement is the newest iteration of the Black freedom struggle from enslavement forward. And during this time, we see Brown versus Board of Education is happening and this large push to desegregate schools. And what happens during this time is that a ton of Black folks are kicked out of their jobs, Black teachers who are thoroughly educated during this time period. And so then we start looking, especially in the 90s, when we retell the story of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it's always with this deficit lens on what Black folks were doing. And courtesy of folks like Vanessa Siddle Walker and Anderson, we get to see that Black folks was really like ahead of their time. I'm using scare quotes for those who can't see, but (laughs) like ahead of their time, like Black folks have always been I'm still mad at this, but like, you know, I had one talk and the subtitle of the talk in person was, we've been doing this shit for years. Like the, the, the argument that Black folks have been thinking about liberation and education. So the Black Freedom Movement is such a, a great space because it disrupts these notions of Black inferiority to open up the door for us to see how we were thinking holistically about education. And that's such a beautiful sentiment too, I think, you know, because it speaks to why we need to understand that today. It's like, we didn't just get here, right? We didn't just arrive at this point, like this current iteration of where we are in, in what I'll call the struggle, right? And it's the struggle for freedom, right? But freedom in all different, in all different forms, but especially like, you know, significant to this is the, is for education and how we, we view it as, as a tool for one of the ways that we achieve our freedom. And I think it's always like these dumb moments that I have as a Black educator in the classroom when I read about all of these theories. And I'm like, duh, like you're supposed to care about children. You're supposed to love them. You're supposed to give them what they need to succeed. Like what is so special about caring about Black kids? It's It seems like it's it's like this, it's a radical thing to do. And it's just, it's been normalized. And like you said before, we've been doing this shit for years. It's just now taking traction. And the thing that I don't like that's happening now is people that don't look like us making tons and tons and tons of money on the things that have been happening for centuries, right? Um, so I think that that's, that's something to really, um, to really think about. You bring up a really good point that we've been doing this for a very long time. It's in our DNA at this point and that we need to like push that forward and come really strong with this and really try to get as much as we can 
for our black and brown students. I think it's extremely important. And I think that you are right on it to think that, you know, we got this and we're going to do this. And the only way that we're going to be free is that we have to free us. I'll say that. Dr. Robinson, I, I want to circle back to something that you mentioned before when you were talking about, you know, again, we've been doing, we've been here, right? We've been doing this, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think, you know, when you bring up Brown versus Board of Education, there is a conversation that is had within Black circles about, you know, like, was desegregation really the goal of Brown versus Board of Education? And as we can see now, right, the answer is no. And our schools are more segregated than they were than at the time of Brown. But What's really important about this, though, is that I think that, in a way, it stole our narrative. It attempted to steal our our power to speak to our experiences. And in doing that is like, you know, pulling the wool over your eye with all these other policies. And it's like, okay, yeah, now, look, we, we've achieved equality, right? And I'm using air quotes now, too. We've achieved equality for people because we've desegregated schools. When it's like, really, no, you've seemingly tried to see that, that Black people were rising up in terms of owning their education. And it's essentially been taken away with integration. Or I I use, again, air quotes, integration, because did we really integrate? No. You better say that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm taking us to church this morning. (laughs) The church. Taking the the, the church. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's real. And I think we do. Yeah, I think that coming back to that point about Black folks rising up and, you know, reclaiming space. Politically and in all spaces, I think there it, there was this, this large fear about what Black liberation was starting to look like. Mm-hmm. And so take an argument for equity and turn it into a space to essentially further white progress. Like you mentioned, too, we lost all these Black educators. They were they were out of their job. And, and like you said, Vanessa Siddle Walker talks about this in her story about um, um, Horace Tate. Yes. In her story about Horace Tate, which is her most recent book. And and she talks about what happened to this whole network of Black educators who, in large part, were coming from the South and had built their own communities, right? And so we see this, if we look back to the political and to the social, like we see that this happened in places like Rosewood in all Black towns, like where we're completely decimated because we were rising up and taking our own liberation into our own hands. But also you have these Black educators that were so highly educated they had advanced degrees from the North because the South refused to educate them in their colleges. And so they were more educated than the white teachers and administrators that were, that were teaching at the time. And you know when integration happened that these, you know, this whole idea of Black teachers being in these schools and educating white children and Black mm-hmm. children was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. No. Um, but I digress. Entire truths. Entire truths here at the table, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so how does your research kind of add to like more of an asset-based approach to like understanding black education, because I know a lot of the things that you, that we've always talking about is we're always talking about this great loss, this deficit of like, we lost Mm -hmm. thousands of teachers. We lost this, we lost that. So how can we bring that asset-based approach to, to research and kind of like the direction that you're going in now? I think for me, it's largely about uh, covering a lot of these stories just thinking about my work for Black Freedom Movement. One, I think when we think about civil rights and Black power, we, in our larger collective consciousness, place so much emphasis on the Black charismatic male leader. And we miss so many of the important women leaders of this time. Thinking about Ella Baker and how instrumental she was in the development of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. 
and she literally like helped them to create the structure for, for SNCC to exist. But she had been a part of all of these other spaces. The beginnings of the work for the NAACP that led to a lot of the major Supreme Court phases in that time. Thinking about her connection to Dr. King and the SCLC and calling him out for ways that he centered himself. <laughs> and then thinking about folks like Septima Clark, who's literally practicing the things that we celebrate Palo Fede for in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And so she and her cousin Bernice Robinson are instrumental in, in what we call the citizenship schools of the civil rights movement, which were the schools that they created to teach Black folks the things that they needed to pass these racist literacy tests in order to be able to vote. But the style that she's using is like foregrounding the stories of the students that were before her, adult students, people across age ranges. And so thinking about folks like Tim Clark is like, is uncovering our ways of listening to our stories and understanding our stories and learning literacy through our stories. So, you know, the people would talk, she'd write down their stuff on a dry cleaner bag and then show it to them and, and teach them how to read by looking at their own story. So literally our stories creating literacy for us. And so coming back to that question about looking back is so important is we use those strategies now. They talk about them in language learning, but we have folks who are doing this work and the personal as political as part of the, the feminist mantra, right, is also pedagogical. And so Septima Clark is embodying that. She and Bernice Robinson are embodying those perspectives and and giving us concrete examples. So the, the more we look back at ways that Black folks have been doing this, we learn ways that we can build on this exact same trajectory in the present. What does that look like for us today, using the student, the lives and the stories before us to teach our students, not just literacy, but ways of thinking and engaging and moving forward? Yeah, you kind of got to our next question, but I think what I want to add to that question, no, 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 this is perfect because it's great. So history remembers like Booker T. Washington, and other famous principles, why don't we really know of like these black female principles and black women educators that have really broke the ground and really kind of went against a lot of the models that, for example, Booker T. Washington and like kind of like, we just need to get black folks skills to work for white people. Like, how do we get to a place where we just kind of, we can cite all these black male principles and all of these black male leaders. And as you said, a lot of them are the black male charismatic leaders. If you ask anybody, even in education and outfield, like, can you talk about M Street High School in DC? Can you talk about any other leaders, um, black women leaders in the field that really broke ground? Everyone's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And a lot of it, I think, too, coming to the politics of Booker T., is that he was shutting stuff down for, you know, it was like in any dissenters, he controlled so much of the like the philanthropic monies that went to the Black community that anybody who was a dissenter was shut down. Du Bois was speaking out back then, and they got shut down, um, Trotter, but also, who's off, often silenced in history, Ida B. Wells, who was also an educator, right? <laughs> like, folks forget that she was teaching for, like, I can't remember, but before her, her big muckraking piece came out, I think it was, she had already been teaching, like, two or three years. She had been teaching since she was about 16 or 17. But we forget that Ida B. Wells was also a teacher. And I think what happens is the collective kind of focus on a male-centered or a man-centered voice is what happens when we, when we are still connected to patriarchy, regardless of other forms of oppression. And so, Thinking about how, like, the investment in patriarchy and the investment in male and men leadership silences all of the everyday and superb acts that Black women are engaging in for the sake of education and liberation. 
if we could, I don't know, divorce ourselves, interrogate, push through <laughs> our commitments to patriarchy, it, we would clearly see these types of examples every day. And, you know, like when we talk about Black feminism and Black feminist thought, it's like Patricia Hill Collins, you know, put name to what we've been doing mm -hmm. as Black women at, you know, interrogating these spaces. And what's really integral to understanding Black feminist thought and how we, we look at these things is because, you know, we, we have to focus on like you said, you know, the, the personal is political, but also we have to focus on issues of, of class and, and of sex and, you know, of gender and how that impacts what we're actually able to, like, how we're actually recognized. Mm -hmm. Like, Madison and I actually had a conversation talking about, you know, Black male leaders, and he's like, it's been overdone, you know, and he's right, because we don't hear about these Black women leaders, but yet they set the foundation for things like caring pedagogy and Black women and, and what we contribute to to this care and ethics. And a lot of that has also been hijacked by white feminism, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, it's like, we've been doing this. Mm -hmm. We've yeah. been here. So I would love to, you know, see moving forward, us talking more about these Black women leaders and what they're doing and going back into history and pulling our, our ancestors forward and the work that they've done mm -hmm. and really highlighting that and making it present in the work that we're doing now. Same, same. Yeah. <laughs> and what does it look like, when, coming back to the, the Booker T example too, what does it look like when you have men who are actively silencing the voices of Black women? Mm -hmm. um, and and the, that becomes something that we consistently have to contend with. Like, what does it look like for me as a cis man to also use my privilege to disrupt patriarchy as it exists, but also recognizing the limitations when patriarchy is intersecting with whiteness, but not using that as an excuse to not call out <laughs> my fellow cis Black men when they are not either upholding the work of Black women or upholding the work of Black queer folks. And that's when we get into like the critical pedagogy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> we'll save that for another <laughs> You know, so this this actually brings me to your, your new project that you're working on, right? We speak about... Um, bringing things forward and bringing, you know, the Black freedom movement full circle to this iteration, right? So you're currently working on a new project about the history of the Black Panthers Oakland Community School as a site for understanding Black self-determination and the shift in mainstream curriculum pedagogy and the Black radical imagination in education. But can you tell us more about this project? So what, is, what does this look like? Thank you for that question. Uh, it's my dissertation project. So I've been working on it for a while. <laughs> I actually found this project because I was taking a class conference of right, the Black Power at the time. And I was like, I think there's so much happening during the Black Freedom Movement, coming back to that question we were talking about before, that I want to focus on. I want to know what models existed in the past. And so I was having coffee with a homegirl and she was like, yo, there's a thing at the Schomburg tonight. It's women in the Black Panther Party. You should go. So I went and it was a talk with Dr. Robin Spencer and Dr. Mary Phillips who I asked to join me on my dissertation committee. And they were in conversation with Erica Huggins, who was the former director of the Black Panther Party's Oakland Community School. And so the school ran in different iterations from 1970 until 1982, to the very end of the party. And so when she got up there and started speaking about this school, I was like, this is the stuff that I think that a lot of Black educators are doing now in spaces that I want to be able to connect to this past, right, to this trajectory. Three meals a day, holistic care in schools, 
opportunities to learn about the geography of the African diaspora, the cultural knowledge of the African diaspora, opportunities to intersect that knowledge of self with an understanding of an international kind of conceptualization of who students are. So like, not just myself as a Black self, but my Black self in interaction with other cultures. A political consciousness and understanding, creativity and opportunity for students to choose their own projects. I mean, it was all of this was happening in this talk. And I said, this is the school I want to study. That was six years ago. And from that moment forward, I just kept digging. You know what really excites me about this besides the, the just the whole project? But <laughs> I'm really curious to see how, like, you know, going, of course, I'm going to take it back to Black women, right? I'm really curious to see the role of Black women who are part of the, you know, Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been many discussions, many heated discussions about the role of Black women and what's happened to them within the Black Panther Party. So is that something that you address in this project? Yes, I take up the kind of the, some of the tensions. So my mentors, Robin Spencer and Mary Phillips, both of their projects are on Black Panther women. And so uh, Robin Spencer, her book is called The Revolution Has Come. And I was such a nerd, like the first day of class, this is before I even asked her to be on my committee. I come with my, my annotated book and I was like, hey, you sign me. But there was a whole question. <laughs> I love it. I did that to one of my, my heroes too. <laughs> and so I show up to class and I asked her, you know, but then we start talking throughout the rest of the, the semester. And then I take her class the next semester. And then, but in her book, she does a lot to talk about like how Hugh P. Newton has this wonderful address in, I think it's 1971 where he's like talking about, you know, we, the Black Panther Party, support the homosexual movement and the women's rights movement, <laughs> right? And those are the two things, uh, th- that's the liberation we support. But then when you look at the politics of the party on the ground, the way the misogyny is playing out in different chapters, the way it's even playing out at the headquarters in Oakland. And then when Huey left and appointed Elaine Brown as chair, all of the hidden and not so hidden tensions that she's facing with Black men who were in the party. And so like, we say that we have a commitment to Black women and to queer folks, but like, what does that look like? And even the way that queerness works out, you know, like queerness is kind of like generally accepted in some spaces, but largely, again, like it's stated, but not really accepted. Like how many Black gay men do you know who've come forward who said that they've also been Panthers? And so like thinking about how there's a commitment to queerness, but not necessarily at the forefront. I deal with that. Robin Spencer does it better. I'm not going to lie. That's why she's my mentor, right? <laughs> like, but in, in the middle chapters, I really start to contend with, like, what was the, the public and private um, understandings of gender? But, like, how do we see it? How do we see women's leadership creating this dope space? All three leaders of the Oakland Community School were women. So in each of those three iterations, you had women principals in a time period where the majority of principals, K through 12, were men, right? Um, and, in, and in public schools, white men. And so you had white women teachers and white men leaders. And at this school, you have all three times, all three iterations, Black women leadership. And so I talk about the schools being the space for the, the, the party to kind of contend with this politics as Black women are taking the leadership role and as they're holding up this space. And so like, like how is the school creating deliberatory thought that we didn't even see necessarily within a larger party? Mm-hmm. I'd love that. I'm so excited for this project. Thank so, you. Thank you. Yeah, can't wait. And, you know, we're happy to support you here. You know, once you come on the podcast, you're family. So, <laughs> you know, we're excited to support any projects you have moving forward. So please, you know, share share wide right. and freely with us. No, I totally agree. I mean, there's there's so much to unpack. I think I need to, I think I need to break and think about this episode. And as I'm doing my reflection, thinking about the role that Black women play in education and what sort of 
privileges that I may have as a Black educator and how I push those narratives forward so that we can have a more comprehensive understanding of the direction of Black education and what we can learn from that. So I think that we were pretty heavy and now we want to kind of end off with something a little light. So what are some of the things that bring you joy? Things that bring me joy, several. I have such a dope community of friends. And so I think one of the hardest parts about like me being back home, and I didn't talk about this enough at the beginning, but but one thing's about like I went home to visit for a, a quick session and home for me is California, San Diego. And my dad's like a, a pastor. And so there are ways that like all of that were traumatic for me as a black gay kid growing up um, in, in California. And so I think the things that have been really comforting for me that bring me joy are my the, the ways that I continue to hold black queer community here. And so uh, just calling my friends up and kikiing over silly shit every now and then just to like kind of like, you know, like release some of the, the frustrations. I, I mean, that's one of them. I think music, anytime I'm in the zone, just like listening to music, that, that's bringing me joy. I still keep in contact with a lot of my former students. So like hearing their stories about where they are in life, like how they're growing and changing holistically, that actually was what got me through the PhD program. I was so frustrated with, and some of my students like would see me on social media and they'd be like, yo, Dr. Rob. I was like, I'm not Dr. Rob yet. They'd be like, Dr. Rob, you're, <laughs> you're giving us hope out here. You're giving us hope out here. And so like, th- like those moments really, 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 really help. Um, yeah. What about y'all? What's bringing y'all joy these days? Especially as Omarion is out here running these streets. Oh, Look at the script. Maddie, what's bringing you joy? What's your black boy joy, Maddie? My black boy joy is working with my co-host and colleague and good friend, Fazia. She's been helping me get through a lot of this emotional up and down roller coaster of the PhD. So that's been very helpful. Also, just working, I work exclusively with Black boys. So just like every day, no matter what's going on in the world where Omarion is destroying everything, but I mean, mm. his music as well, but- Don't do that. Don't do him But to be able to come to work every day and really just not teach, but really just bring whatever I can and understanding that they're doing the best that they can and like just learning together. Like we're in a room, we're just learning, we're exchanging information, we're the same- it's basically a circle. I learn from you. You learn from me. My kids are, at the end of every year, they're able to choose two or three books that we want to read. So they decided that they want to do anime. So right now we're going through the process of curating anime books and then figuring out what we want to study for a month or so, which is interesting because one of my students is like, you know, <laughs> Mr. Payton, I think a lot of people don't know that Black boys like anime. Well, when I went to the convention, it was only like, it was so many white, Chinese, Asian, whatever, but like there was just, we were in sprinkles. And he's like, I just want people to know that like we can nerd out too. And that really, that was like earlier last year, but that really touched me because it's like, yes, like people need to know that we're, we can be black and nerds and we don't have to, that nerdiness doesn't have to be associated with whiteness, mm. um, that it's its own brilliance and within itself. So I think that that's something that was, yeah, and it wasn't Omarion that was something else. It was Delta that was really getting through everything. And he was like, yeah, I want people to know that there are Black people that do anime. We love anime. We do cosplay. We do all of those things. So that brought me a lot of joy. Thank you for sharing that. 
And my black girl joy moment really is just, you know, new year and really focusing on like looking at the finish line, right? That's, that's bringing me joy. And the fact that I'll be able to hopefully make a difference with my research, but, you know, I think just teaching, I've been in this position where I've been, been teaching as an adjunct and it's just bringing me so much joy. And like to see the moment where students like understand where I'm coming from. And I, I do not hold any punches back about incorporating my blackness into my teaching and my black womanness into my teaching. I'm very clear that this is the positionality that I'm coming from as a black woman. And I think just taking this journey of really starting to meet, to understand my role as a black woman educator, right? And and embracing that. But then, you know, just just for fun, um, my black girl joy is also just, you know, traveling to these different spaces and just really enjoying myself. Like I believe in leisure. I believe that black women should experience luxury. And so really embracing that and having a good time with it and experiencing all the luxurious things that I know I deserve as a black woman and mm -hmm. being unapologetic about it. You better luxuriate. I love it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, Dr. Robinson, we are so grateful for you. So grateful to have a new member to our family. So we really appreciate you. We, you know, we validate and, and just see where you're coming from. Like, because everything that you, you brought to this space is just so important, I think, for us to share. Not only, not only are we learning from you, but this is, this is going to be great for our audience as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Where can our listeners find you? You can find me in a lot of spaces. I, I don't tweet as much as I used to. Um, I haven't, like, my social media ain't been popping as much, but find it because I usually, every time a new article comes out, I usually post it. So Robert P. Robinson on Twitter and on Instagram. So uh, Robert P. Robinson. And also, I think I keep stuff posted on my John Jay website. So if you go to John Jay College website through CUNY, you Google my name, it'll show up, and my bio is also there. Uh, other things are available. So, so be on the lookout. <laughs> we out. We are. Race to Education is mixed and edited by Luis Rodriguez. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter at racethroughedu1 and on Instagram at racethrougheducation. You can also visit us at www.racethrougheducation.com for podcast updates, highlights, resources, and more. And finally, let us know how you feel. Send us an email at racethrougheducation at gmail.com for a chance to have your questions read on the show.